Hi, welcome to another episode of Take 15. I'm Bob Stammers, Director of Investor Education at CFA Institute. I'm at the 68th CFA Institute Annual Conference in Frankfurt, Germany, and I'm joined by Martin Wolf. Um, he is the Associate Editor and Chief Economic Commentator at the Financial Times. He writes a regular col column on the world economy and has written several books, the recent being Shift in Shocks, What We Have Learned and Have Still to Learn from the Financial Crisis. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. So let's talk a little bit about your book and your presentation today. What are the shifts that you discuss in your presentation in the newest book that you believe caused the financial crisis? Well, the shifts are macroeconomic forces, above all changes at the world level in savings and investment behavior. So on the savings side, I think the big forces have been shifts in the distribution of income towards the top, towards higher saving people around the world. It's been quite a general phenomenon in many countries, including China, the US, so forth. So that has lowered consumption, raised savings. Corporates have been very profitable. Uh, that increases retained earnings, which is another form of savings. And they've been very profitable largely because of globalization, another huge shift, which has shifted income from labor towards capital. And the third really big shift has been the rise of very high-saving emerging economies, of which by far the most important has been China, which has the highest national savings rate, partly households, but again, particularly corporate uh, in the world. And then that's the saving side. On the investment side, there's been a marked weakening in the propensity to invest of the major developed country corporations in their home markets. And I think that reflects declining growth. So why would you build a new car plant in, in Europe? There are far too many already. And uh, uh, the fact that the new technologies, uh, the companies that we think of as the new dynamic companies, just don't need much physical capital investment. Physical capital is not what the information technology revolution on the whole is about. So that's the savings investment side. And the result of this, in my view, is that the equilibrium global real interest rate has fallen. So why is the global financial system still very fragile? And what is the change to reduce the risk of continued financial insecurity? Well... The global financial system is still fragile because, one, it's sort of structurally so in the sense that our core financial institutions, the banks above all, are simply very highly leveraged institutions. They're less leveraged than they were, considerably less, but they're still very highly leveraged. So uh, 25 to 1, 20 to 1 leverage, debt to equity ratios, that's still very normal in the world's biggest banks. Second... Their balance sheets remain incredibly large by historical standards. Some of them have shrunk quite a bit, but they're still incredibly large. And the reason, and that's just the other side of saying there's still an immense amount of debt out, out there. There's been a certain amount of private sector deleveraging, reduction in private sector debt, but it's not been dramatic. Even in the US, say, the ratios of gross private debt to GDP are back to sort of 2003, 2004 levels, but they're still, so they're lower than they were in 2008, but they're still very, very high. And that, of course, means 
the intermediaries are holding this stuff, or at least they're holding uh, a, a, a lot of this stuff. And a lot of this debt, and this is the final thing, I think remains bad. And I think it's a particularly big problem in Europe because the economies haven't been growing. Uh, lots of countries where there still remains quite a, a large amount of bad debt. And we should add, to, this is the private sector side, the final part, though this is not directly related to the financial sector, but indirectly, which is that government balance sheets are much more leveraged than before. And of course, governments continue to play a large role. They supply the safe debt that banks are required to hold for liquidity purpose. Um, but of course, they're also backstops. So weak governments sort of make, tend to make financial sectors look a bit weak. So for all these reasons, we have restored things that are better than they were, but it's still pretty fragile. So you've mentioned that our reaction to the financial crisis may have laid the foundations for another one. How, if we have one, how do you think it'll be different and what can be done by financial professionals or policymakers to avoid it? It's very difficult to predict the nature of the next crisis because one of the things one realizes is that they, the crises, though they always come out of a period of overconfidence, and uh, and over leverage they're always related to those things uh the where they come from almost by definition has to be a surprise as it were because it's the it's the place where the risks have been underestimated my guess for what it's worth is that the next one is like and it is a guess is like to emerge from somewhere in the emerging world uh, because i think that there's been more confidence there more uh, leverage for example, huge amount of bond lending uh, to the to the uh, emerging world. Some people worry about the currency mismatches. People that have been borrowing corporates that have been borrowing uh, dollar bonds. What will happen with exchange rate adjustment that is now occurring? Their real debt rise. Who knows? But the basic problem, of course, is that if you've got a world economy which is extraordinarily highly leveraged almost everywhere. There's an immense amount of debt out there. The the last addition to this has been the huge China bubble of the 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12 period. Uh, It's sort of just sort of waiting for the accident to happen. My basic argument in the book is that we have a financial sector. Uh, We have constructed for ourselves a financial sector which is so dependent on leverage and credit growth that it is in some sense designed to fail. It is bound to fail because if anything goes seriously wrong, there isn't enough equity in the system to bear the losses. And when people realize that, who financed it, who've lent their money to it, they panic. And all crises basically relate to panic withdrawals of funds by people who suddenly realize that what they thought was safe turns out to be much less safe than they imagined. Let me shift gears a little bit. I want to talk. There's been a lot of interest on the impact of central banks. I talked about that a little bit. Um, what do you think the role of central banks should be going forward? Should they be reformed or restructured in some way? Are their inflation targets appropriate? And should they be focusing on other things than their traditional goals of inflation targeting? This is an enormous question, uh, and I think it's important to say that you can't really rethink the role of central banks without rethinking the entire monetary system. Uh, So the way I think about this uh, is that we created central banks for two reasons, historically. Different countries had different origins. 
partly was to, to manage government debt markets, to ensure liquidity in government debt markets, and that was to ensure that there wouldn't be a panic in government debt markets. Uh, that function remains. I don't think it is possible to imagine a world without government debt markets. Government debt plays a very important benchmark role. And anyway, there's a lot around. It's going to be around for a long time. So that that function remains. And in the limits, uh, in extreme crises, world wars, things like that, central banks fund governments. I mean, that's just what they do uh, because people are prepared to hold money created by their state. Now, the second function they have performed increasingly, and in the case of the Federal Reserve, it was created for this purpose, um, following previous models, is to ensure the liquidity of the banking sector. And the uh, the reason that's necessary is that the banking sector is structurally vulnerable to runs. And the reason for that is very simple, is that maturity mismatch is core to any banking sector. It has relatively liquid assets and relatively liquid liabilities, i.e. deposits, people want their money, and other short-term assets. Uh, short-term liabilities or short-term assets of, of households and corporates. And in circumstances when people worry about the solvency of banks, people withdraw their money. And uh, obviously depositor insurance wards against this, but there are other ways, as we've seen, for runs to occur. And central banks exist to deal with those runs. You could avoid that, but what will happen if you do avoid that is that periodically these crises will cause depressions, huge depressions. And the central banks were designed to prevent that. If we're going to rethink the role of central banks, we have to rethink the entire system in these respects. Now, within that, assume those things remain, I think the conclusion, my view, would be, obviously rightly, they have to pay much more attention to the stability of the financial sector than they did. So inflation targeting is not enough. It's clear that inflation targeting, in fact, does not ward against financial risk. I think that can be done structurally through higher capital requirements, much higher capital requirements, and counter-cyclically through what's now called macroprudential policy, which is pursuing regulatory changes which are uh, inverse to the direction, counter-cyclical. That's, that's crucial. And on inflation targeting, I'm afraid I'm one of those people who has come to the view that we should have had somewhat higher inflation targets. It would have given them more room. But that's assuming that basically we continue with the same system. We could imagine a different system, but it's unimaginably different. It basically means unwinding what we've created over centuries. It's a significantly complex thing to do. Well, there are people in the U.S. who are thinking about that, but I think you have to do more than go back onto the gold standard. You have to start rethinking the nature of fractional reserve banking. And... Uh, and I do discuss that in my book, uh, but getting away from fractional reserve banking, which I think has a lot to recommend it, you can see the argument for it, but that's a really big change, and you'd have to think that through rigorously and implement it carefully. I'm assuming that's off the table unless there's a monstrous crisis again, which could happen, but what we are going to have to do, think is much more carefully about how we actually manage this system better, because we certainly have mismanaged it. There's no doubt everybody must see that. These are related questions. You have mentioned one way to resolve some of the underlying problems with the financial system may be to move away from bank-based credit altogether and rely on permanent budget deficits financed by central banks. Can you explain the term helicopter money and describe the benefit of permanent money finance deficits? Well, this is actually fits, interestingly, with uh, the most radical free market proposal. 
which was, uh, the, or one of the most, which is sometimes called the Chicago Plan, which was introduced in the 30s by the Chicago School. Then, uh, uh, Irving Fisher was involved, not at Chicago, but the greatest American economist, Herbert si- um, Henry Simon, and, uh, um, Henry Simons, I think it was. And, uh, um, their idea was this. Fractional reserve banking is hopelessly unstable. There's a panic. It's a disaster. We've got to get rid of that. But people still want money. Okay. In our economy, nearly all our money is created by banks. 98% of money is created as a byproduct of bank lending. That's our deposits. It's, that's where, where it comes from. It comes from bank lending as a byproduct of it. This is not fix sales understanding. Now, the problem is that's unsafe. That's dangerous. So how do you make it safe? Well, the government can create as much money as it likes. Of course, you don't want it to create too much. You need a central bank to make sure that it creates the right amount. Uh, uh, and when the government creates money, we call it base money, those are reserves for the banks. Okay? Uh, now, we can simply say the banks should hold 100% reserves. So the bank, the banks, commercial banks hold reserves at the central bank. The central bank finances the government. The government... The finance of the government goes to households because it pays them uh, for the various services it buys from them, health and military and all the rest of it. So households deposit their money in the banks. So you've got a nice circle. So in this situation, money, payment money, the payment system is 100% backed by the government. And the, the, the amount uh, of such money that you generate is basically determined by what you think the demand for money in the economy will be. So how much you think you grow? 5% a year, whatever it is. So that finances a pretty big deficit. 5% growth, finance a 5% deficit. Um, that means you can lower taxes. That's the obvious thing. You can just lower taxes. Now, meanwhile, households and corporates, they lend to each other in non-monetary form. They're, they're matched. So the rest of the world economy becomes sort of mutual funds, investment banking, but without uh, without uh, deposit, uh, without uh, uh, providing something which is completely liquid. So that's very difficult to do. Making that demarcation very difficult. But essentially, that's how this sort of system will work. Now, helicopter money is just an emotive term for this. It was Milton Friedman's. Uh, it was a Chicago school idea, and he was in favour of this in extremists. What he was saying was, well, let's suppose you've got a really big recession because you've got too little money. Uh, the government can just print the money and hand it over to people. Well, actually, borrowing from the central bank or using money printed by the central bank in order to fund goods and services or to send checks to the households is exactly the same, uh, exactly the same thing. The key idea here is to separate out money, which is a function of the state, from the financial sector, which is a, which is a function of the private sector. And that's, I think, what attracted these free market economists. What seems to me so interesting about this idea is one of the very few ideas in economics in which there's, if you like, the radical libertarian right and the left degree, which might, you might say is rather disconcerting. It, it's, it seems to me a very, very interesting, though provocative idea, and it does get to the heart of some very, very big risks in our financial sector. And it's something radical, you know, people who really think we should change the system need to look at. Great. Last question. What is uh, the one or two practical insights that you hope that investment professionals will take away from your book and your presentation at the conference today? I think the most important ones probably are is that we have really quite a dysfunctional, global, real economy at the moment. It is generating uh, results 
which are very surprising to us and I think are deep-rooted in the system. And the most important of this, these is that the real returns on safe investments are really very low. So if you want to get high returns, you have to be prepared to take quite a bit of risk. I mean, it seems to me a sort of fundamental reality. These zero real interest rates on government bonds are not an accident. They're, they are being driven by partly by risk preferences, but also by really global structural excess savings, in my view. And uh, that's a very, very difficult environment for investors. Asset markets have now priced this in, so that's that gave you a one-off boom. The prices go up very high, as they have, but it means prospective returns are rather low. So getting really good returns on the present level of markets asset prices around the world is going to be very, very hard. And you have to be realistic about prospective returns in this environment. And there's obviously crash possibilities. As it, if it corrects, there are obvious crash possibilities. Not extreme, but they, they are clearly, clearly there. And the second thing I think they have to understand is that the financial sector, though certainly much better than it was six, seven years ago, remains very, very large uh, with an immense amount of debt out there both public and private, particularly including private, and and um, and the leverage ratio, leverage is still very substantial. So we have a crisis-prone financial sector. I don't know where this the next problems will arise. Maybe public sector debt, maybe somewhere else. But one has to understand that we are in a very uncomfortable position globally compared with 40 years ago in terms of the amount of leverage there is. It's just a hell of a lot. This is not a very optimistic picture, but I think one has to be realistic about where we are. We had this sort of great bull market from 1980 to the end of the 90s, not really returned. There's been a lot of wobbles. Uh, now we have this financial fragility. It's just a very difficult environment, and one has to be sober and rational, but one can reasonably expect uh, to get safely in terms of returns in this environment. Martin, thank you very much for joining me today. You've given us some interesting and some sobering um, things to think about. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us. If you found this content interesting and would like to see more Take 15 videos, they can be reached at www.cfainstitute.org. Thank you. Copyright 2015 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.